Good morning, Bridge of Hope. We're so happy that you're with us today. We welcome all of our friends from around the globe who are also worshiping with us today. We're continuing in our study, Armed and Ready. Uh, we began a series two weeks ago on Ephesians chapter six, the armor of God. Our first message of the series, we talked about spiritual warfare, looking at well, what does spiritual warfare really mean? What does it look like? How do we understand it? And then last week, we started to talk about the first piece of the armor, the belt of truth. Today, we're going to talk about the breastplate of righteousness. So let's go to our word. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Then Paul says, therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We're going to stop there with our scripture for today. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Your word is life. Your word strengthens us. Your word sustains us. And I pray that today as we break the bread of life, Father, that you would speak to our hearts. Many of us need this word. Um, as we look around our world, we are wondering, Father, what's the point? Um, why isn't righteousness prevailing? Why isn't righteousness making a difference. And so, Father, we pray today that your word will reveal to us that indeed the righteous life, the walk that honors and glorify God, the walk that is holy and blameless, will and does and will continue to make a difference in this world to pull down every stronghold. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to hear and receive and be transformed by your word today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So today I'd like to begin actually by taking a step back and looking at Ephesus. Because as I was reading and as I was studying this, I'm asking myself, well, why would Paul even write this letter um, to the Ephesian church? And when you go to Acts chapter 19, we get a good glimpse or really good insight into the city of Ephesus and why Paul would write this letter. You see, Paul lived in Ephesus for three years and during that time, he was able to see firsthand the idolatrous stronghold in the city. The city's economic survival, their very livelihood was built around the worship of the goddess Artemis. There was a huge temple made for her which was actually considered one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. 
So the city made its profit by making images of her and building shrines for people to worship. So people from all over the known world at that time would come to Ephesus to see this huge temple that was created for their goddess. And so you'd imagine that this was a great big tourist place. And if you know anything about tourist economies, that's where they make their money. And so um, there was a great, also a great deal of magic and sorcery taking place. But when people began to turn to the Lord and they began to turn away from their magic and their sorcery, when they began to trust in Jesus Christ, after Paul and his fellow disciples were witnessing to them and people were receiving the gospel, things started to change. And so in Acts chapter 19, verse 19, we see that as they began, they, they started to be converted. All of the books they used to use to practice magic and sorcery, uh, they brought them to be burned. And when they took the value of these books, all of these books that they were now burning up because they no longer needed them because they had turned away from that lifestyle, it was worth 50,000 silver pieces of silver. And you're like 50,000 pieces of silver in today's dollars, that's almost $1.5 billion. And so that's a lot of money. That tells you how deeply ingrained these practices were. It tells you how rich this economy was from this um, idolatry that's happening in the city. And so as you can imagine, that when these people started to turn away, when these new believers, these new Christians started to turn away from these false gods, the industry, the economy of Ephesus became threatened and people didn't take that lightly. Those who were making their money off, whether it was um, shrine prostitution or temple worship or, or making these golden images, silversmiths, artisans, whatever they were making their money, they became upset because it was threatening them. Their trade was being hurt so badly that a riot broke out in the city. And guess who they blamed? Yep, you guessed it. They blamed the church. They blamed Paul. They blamed all of these people who are spreading this, this gospel or spreading this message, telling people to turn away from these gods, that our gods are not really gods at all. And that became a huge deal and people started to riot in the city. And so as this city is antagonistic toward the church and this idol worship is so ingrained in them, they become more and more threatened. And wholeheartedly, this wasn't just about people feeling threatened. It was about people feeling like their God was being disrespect, disrespectful. And ultimately, it really became a battle of the gods. The small G versus big G, our God, Yahweh. And so Paul recognized that fighting this kind of idolatry was no simple matter. Fighting this kind of idolatry when gods start to fight each other, it's not flesh and blood, it's spiritual warfare. And the reality is when gods, small gods, wage war, it gets bloody, it gets nasty, and they really don't give up until someone or the threat is neutralized. 
If you think about the modern day superheroes, you know, I know some of you are DC people. I'm a Marvel girl myself, but you know, that's because my husband drew me in. Um, you think about Endgame, right? If you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, okay? Most superhero movies, there is some kind of battle, right? The superheroes are considered gods on their own of some kind, and the villains are gods or godlike characters, right? And so if you think about Endgame with Thor and Thanos, right? Thor is really called like a god, small g, right? A god of wherever he's from, I keep forgetting. Um, and so he's a small god, and Thanos sees himself as a godlike person. And so in Endgame, that last, the beginning of the movie, when Thor meets Thanos, Thor's inclination is to what? Chop off his head, right? Because they believe that, listen, if there is a threat, I've got to neutralize it. And so our adversary, right, Satan, is no different. If he can't get us in his corner, he's gonna try to neutralize us. When he realizes that he can't have us and that we're a threat to his kingdom, really he'll try to kill us. How do I know this? Remember Job? The Bible says that Job was a righteous man, but Satan couldn't touch Job on his own. He was only allowed to touch Job after he went to God for permission and God removed his hedge of protection around Job and allowed Satan to touch him, right? And so Paul is thinking about all of this as he's, he's writing this letter. He's, he'd been away from the church, but he's telling them, listen, you've got to persist, right? He recognizes that, listen, I understand the kind of world that you're living in, and I'm writing to encourage you that you've got to persist. And so he says, Put on the armor of God as your defense. It's putting on not a physical armor, but a divine armor. So he uses the imagery of a physical armor, but he's saying put on the divine armor of God as your defense against Satan because the armor covers the key places of exposure an attack from the enemy. And what I want you to realize though, is as we go through this series, and we'll talk about different pieces of the armor, one thing I want you to take away and realize though, is that each piece of the armor is equally important, okay? Because they all work together as a whole to protect the soldier. One piece is not any more important than the other. We gotta have the whole armor on, okay? And so when we're fully clothed in our divine armor, we really have a defense against Satan, against the devil, against the enemy of our soul, who's also called the God or the Prince of this world. Because the reality is he will do anything that he can to keep us captive, and to keep us hooked in his world, in his way of doing things. Sometimes even after he's lost the battle, he'll just keep coming around and trying to lure us back in. Sometimes using the same old schemes that he used to trap us in the first place. Other times he'll try new things, but when he realizes 
that his old tricks have lost their power because Christ has delivered us, he tries something new. And when that doesn't work, sometimes he just tries to take us out completely, just like he did with Job, right? He killed Job's children. He took away Job's wealth. He did all that he could do to Job that God allowed him to do. And then he finally was like, well, God, if I attack Job's body, then I'm going to have him. But remember, the Bible said that Job was a righteous man. So after he lost his children, after he lost his wealth, after he lost what we would consider everything, his wife looks at him and almost despises him after his body is full of boils and everything. And she's like, why don't you just curse God and die? Like, why are you still holding on to your righteousness? Why are you still holding on to being good? And Job says, listen, should I only accept good from the hand of God? And he says, listen, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And the reality is no matter how hard Satan pushed against Job, Job's faith in God allowed him to keep pushing back. Every time he felt knocked down, faith arose and pushed back against those schemes that Satan was throwing at Job. The devil is always at work and he continually uses the same tactics and the same schemes, um, whether it's anger or greed or hate or lust. Um, all of these things are immoral and they're idolatrous acts. So Paul writes to the church and he reminds them that even though your situation, you're living in this kind of situation, even though idolatry is all around and all of these things are idolatry, it's not just about having a graven image, all of these things that pull our hearts away from God are idols. Whether it's hate, whether it's money, whether it's pride, they're all idols. And Paul says, I see how tough your situation is. And he's saying, but you must persist. You can't throw in the towel. You can't give up. So he tells them, put on the breastplate of righteousness as your divine armor against the enemy. So I want to take us to Isaiah 59, where we're given this powerful image, almost a mirror image of our world today. But also, Paul probably drew upon it as he looked at Ephesus, as he remembered the state of that city, of what happens when evil and oppression thrive. Because really, it calls into question God's power and his might. The first half of the chapter, it speaks about hands defiled with blood and people suing one another falsely and feet that run to evil and people disobeying and denying and turning away from God. And you know what it was? These were God's people. These weren't heathens. These were God, God's people that Isaiah was making reference to because they had come back from exile and they had forgotten who God was, right? In, they were in another land and they got used to the practices of those land and then they brought it back. And then we get to verse 14, which really I feel captures succinctly the true state of affairs. 
And this, I feel, is where Paul makes the association with the armor. Turn and look at Isaiah 59, starting at verse 14. And it says, Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. It says, but the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. It says, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And so we are introduced there to the breastplate. The breastplate is possibly the heaviest piece of the armor because it covers our most vital organ. It covers our heart. It's a complete piece that it doesn't just cover the heart. You know, you'll have some images of a Roman soldier where it's just the front piece, but there are some images where it's all around the whole torso of the body, the whole upper chest of the body. Because really, the heart is vulnerable from the front and the back. So you need to protect the back just as much as you need to protect the front. Remember, the goal of war is to neutralize the enemy by any means necessary. I'm gonna say this figuratively, not literally, but have you ever been stabbed in the back by someone? We know that feeling, right? Where somebody kind of does something to you that catches you off guard. And I tell you, being stabbed in the back, figuratively, um, it often hurts worse than if they had done it to your face. You know why? Because you didn't see it coming. That's why we need the breastplate. Because we can't afford to leave our hearts exposed to the enemy's attacks, his arrows, his darts, whatever he's going to throw at us. We can't afford to leave ourselves exposed. We've got to be on our guard 24-7, constantly, because we don't know from which direction he's going to shoot. So then we get to righteousness. So we talked about the breastplate. We got a picture of the breastplate. So then righteousness. So what is righteousness? The dictionary tells us that righteousness is the quality of being morally right or justifiable. A righteous person is a person who has moral character. In other words, they are attentive to their conduct or their behavior in terms of right and wrong, right? They know what's right, they know what's wrong, and they try to err on the side of right. So in Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 24, Paul goes through this entire list of what a righteous person or a righteous walk or a righteous character looks like. And then he starts there, he says, 
put on the new self, right? Because now we are saved. We have been made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, put on the new self created after the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbors, for we are members one of another. All right? So speak the truth. One characteristic. Be angry and do not sin. Amen, somebody. Tell them in the chat, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Ever been so angry that you carried around for days upon days upon days? The Bible says, be angry and don't sin. Don't run the red light. Don't scratch your neighbor's car. Don't kick the cat. Don't yell at the children. Be angry and do not sin. Amen. He said, let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with everyone in need, right? Don't steal, work, so that you not only provide for yourself, but you give, give to the poor, give to those in need, all right? Don't let corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander, even malice. He's saying, put all these things away. And so you see how he's contrasting righteous living with unrighteous living. All of these things that he's saying, put away, are not becoming of a righteous person. They're uncharacteristic of righteousness. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That is righteous living. He continues in verse five, uh, in chapter five, the first few verses, but then chapter five, verses five, he says, um, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, they are an idolater have, and they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and in God. And I want you to notice that all of this, these characteristics that he's going through, it leads up to this concluding paragraph in his letter that says, stand put on the whole armor of God, because he's talking about, we have this new life now, and he recognizes, and he's reminding us that this is how we live, this is how we walk in Christ, but remember, you have a devil, an adversary. But I also want you to notice that these are not just personal um, or moral issues that Paul, these are not just personal moral issues that Paul is addressing. He wants us to look at them globally also. Otherwise, we miss this whole cosmic struggle. We miss the fact that it's spiritual warfare. Also notice that he's speaking to everyone. He's not just speaking to me individual. He speaks to children in chapter six. He speaks to fathers. He speaks to slaves or workers. He speaks to employers or masters. And in chapter five, he speaks to husbands and wives. 
These are all essential relationships that make up a society and they're essential for it to function well. The reality is unrighteousness is like a cancer that wants to spread and it wants to go through every part of your body and capture all those good cells in it and around it and make them destructive to our bodies. Because that's what cancer does. A few bad cancer cells, they start spreading and taking over those good cells and then they become destructive to our bodies. Unrighteousness has the same effect. It wants to destroy our faith. But it doesn't destroy only people, it destroys entire nations. And that's why we have to be righteous people. We have to be people who are longing for Christ, who are living in Christ, who are pursuing holiness and righteousness. But the thing is, and the wonderful part of this is that Christ has freed us from all of this unrighteousness, from all of the bondage of sin. And he's enabled us to live righteously before him and before the world. And so that gives us a good picture of what a righteous life looks like. And so let's put it together. How do we wear now this divine armor? this breastplate of righteousness. We know that we needed to cover that vital organ, our heart, because that's where all iniquity lives, right? And we know what righteousness looks like for the believer who's clothed in righteousness. And so how now do we wear this breastplate of righteousness? We wear, it as a, we wear righteousness as a breastplate when we believe that God is and that God can. In other words, we just have to simply believe God who he is, who he says he is, he can do what he does and can do. Romans 10 and 10 says, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Another translation puts it for the, with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. When we believe, we are made righteous. The Bible says in Genesis 15 and 16 that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. He believed God and it was credited as righteousness. So we must believe that Jesus is not only the savior of our souls, but he's also the savior of the world. Abraham wasn't just looking for a place for himself, but he believed the promises of God about a generation and generations upon generations that will come after him. Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Christ came in his own righteousness to defeat the power of evil in our lives and in this world. And we have access to that same power to transform our world if only we believe. We must wear the breastplate of righteousness out of faith 
and belief in God that God has the power to save, he has the power to deliver, and he has the power to break every stronghold of sin, not only in my life, not only in your life, but in the world so that all would come to Christ. Next, we wear righteousness as a breastplate when we live out our righteous testimony or our Christ-like character. In other words, we must be witnesses. In Colossians 3 verses 12 to 17, I call these the glory robes. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. It says we have to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, we have to forgive one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And it says, and above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And it goes on from there. But it's parallel to what we just read in Ephesians chapter 4 about the characteristics of righteousness, right? So we have to clothe ourselves in humility, in kindness, in meekness, in patience, not just one to another, but also as we encounter people in the world. When we put on righteousness, really, these glory robes or these characteristics, it's like we're wearing this beautiful wedding dress and we're always wearing it. And I remember my wedding day, I did not want to take that dress off because I was the focus and the center of attention. I felt beautiful. And it's like wearing a beautiful wedding dress all the time that stops people in their tracks and they're like, oh, she's so beautiful. Oh, everybody loves to see a beautiful bride, right? We're the bride of Christ, church. We're called to be holy and blameless. We're called to walk always as a bride, adorned with the character and the humility and the love and the patience of Christ. From the pulpit to the pew, we must be clothed in righteousness. And then finally, we must fight for justice. We wear righteousness as a breastplate when we stand against violence and injustice. One author says, the evidence of a broken social system is violence and injustice. Uh, the dictionary definition of justice is the use of power as appointed by law or honor or standards to support fair treatment and due reward. The reality is, is that justice pushes back against our nature to only look out for our own self-interest. It pushes back against our human nature to only look out for our own self-interest. It also pushes back against the vile and the evil in our society. Our God is a God of justice. He first loves justice in his people. And so we can't just point the finger at others and tell them, you gotta be just and you gotta be just. We first must look in our sides ourselves and ask the question, do I practice justice? 
am I just in my decisions, in my actions, even in my thoughts, in the depth of my heart, am I just? We can't be like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who looks at the tax collector and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That's self-righteousness. The tax collector, on the other hand, verse 13 of Luke chapter 18, it says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. While we are not living in sin, we are prone to sin. And so we have to be clothed with humility, recognizing that we are not above others, that we could easily fall prey to this if we're not clothed in the righteousness of God, if we're not looking out for the welfare of others. We must ask, am I robbing others? It's an honest question. Do you cheat on your taxes? Do you withhold things from others when you have it in your power to do good? Do I act morally wrong or wicked? Am I partial towards others? I know that's something that I always have to say, Lord, help me to be more impartial because, you know, I have my favorites. We all have our favorites, right? But partiality, to a certain extent, is unrighteous. Proverbs 14 and 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Christ came to set at liberty those who are oppressed, people who are oppressed by the enemy, they're oppressed by immoral practices in their society, they're oppressed by unjust laws, and they are oppressed in spiritual poverty. And so ask yourself, Am I in spiritual poverty? I'm reminded when Jesus went into the temple and he opened the scrolls, the Bible said, he opened it to Isaiah 61, where it says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison for those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Saints, the reality is, Paul is admonishing us to stand our ground. That's all. If you think about an oak tree, it's not easy to just topple an oak tree. 
You think about oak trees being huge and just, just their roots just running and running. And that's how we have to be. We have to be rooted in Christ. And so the more we resist and the more that we push back against evil, yeah, the more we'll become his target. But Christ, he's our divine warrior and he's got our back. He's got our back. Why don't you write in the chat that Jesus Christ has my back, so I'm gonna keep standing. Reality is all we need to do is just to keep standing. We need to put our divine armor on and we need to take our stand. One closing question for you. Are you able to stand firm are you standing firm or are you constantly being defeated or pushed back by the devil's scheme? I want to draw your attention back to Ephesians. We've been in the, in the, the whole letter this whole time. Ephesians chapter one, the first chapter of this letter. And he starts this letter by reminding the churches of all of the riches that they have in Christ Jesus and that they are seated in heavenly places. That's still true today for you. It's still true today for me. It was true for the church in Ephesus and it will continue to be true because we have these riches in Christ Jesus. He saved us, he's redeemed us, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit. We have a guarantee that we are his and we belong to him. And because we belong to him, our God will fight for us. And so we can rest in this confidence and we can have this assurance that Jesus Christ, our commander in chief, he will lead us into battle victoriously if we've got to go. But knowing that he's not going, we're not going without him. He's going before us. He's fighting for us. He, we have him surrounding us on every side. All we have to do is be clothed in his armor and take our stand against the enemy. He's already won the victory on our behalf. So all we've got to keep doing is standing. Stand firm, stand firm, clothed in your divine armor. Amen, amen. And so I want to invite you to pray with me. Perhaps you are, you have not been able to stand firm. Perhaps the devil, his schemes and his devices have been shaking you a lot lately. Sometimes you look at your world and there were days, I'll tell you, that things seem a little hopeless. But then I have to remember, hope thou in God, who is the help of my countenance. Hope thou in God, because the scripture says he sees all this. The Spirit of the Lord God is here to break up all this oppression. He's here to deliver us. He's here to release our hearts from captivity and bondage. I want to encourage you today. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He
He's already defeated Satan. He's already defeated death and hell of the grave. He will defeat whatever situation you're facing today.